Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have two special guests with us, Gary Beasley and Gregor Watson. Gary and Gregor co-founded Roofstock, which connects real estate investors with leased rental properties. Before starting their company, Gary was co-CEO of Starwood Residential Trust, and Gregor founded two companies in the single-family rental real estate space. So if you're one of the listeners who's been writing in requesting a show on real estate, this one is for you. Gary and Gregor, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I'm a little sniffly. I, I have a little cold. I don't know who gets a cold in July, but I managed to get one so much that Jeff is sitting outside of the recording studio because he's afraid of getting sick. Um, so if, if I'm a little sniffly, I apologize. But before before we start, one of the reasons I wanted to have you guys on the show is I don't know anyone who's ever had an investment conference at Squaw Valley before, but not only at Squaw Valley, did I see you guys managed to hold an investment conference in an Irish pub? Did, did I have that right? <laughs> the, the old Dubliner. Uh, ab- absolutely. And we actually, um, not only did we have a conference in an Irish pub, but um, we had one of the world's top extreme skiers and athletes there, uh, which uh, JT Holmes, who uh, skied with some of our attendees uh, the next day. And it was is pretty incredible. So it was a it was a good excuse to get a bunch of wealth managers to a pretty cool part of the world and talk to them about what we're doing on the investment side. So killed two birds with one stone. I always feel like some of the best decisions are made over a pine or two. <laughs> Very cool. I hope this becomes an annual event. I have a lot of stitchers, uh, stitches and sutures and broken bones from Squaw. So uh, one of my favorite places on the planet. Before we dive in and, and start talking about real estate, uh, why don't you guys just tell us real quickly about yourselves? I'd like to hear the origin story, or, origin story of how y'all two met, um, how you ended up starting Roofstock together, and, and, and just kind of a real quick overview of the company before we kind of dive into to real estate in general. Sure. So this is Gregor. I'll give you kind of a, a quick my quick background, how we got into the single family space. So I, um, I've always been an entrepreneur started in land and home building and um, managing uh, money for some family offices and then saw the opportunity during the downturn to start buying big um, master plan communities from home builders. So started doing that and then saw the opportunity to start buying single family homes way below uh, replacement cost. Thought it would be a good idea if we could rent these out, you know, we could send our investors some dividend checks. Um, but it had never really been done in scale. So, uh, you know, 2009 started buying houses, developing some technology to to manage effectively, efficiently manage homes kind of throughout the the Bay Area. Ended up building that business into one of the top ten owners of single family homes in the country. Um, uh, it's a national platform. During that time, uh, built a debt business in the space, but then also which we sold the Blackstone, but had 1,500 homes in Dallas and uh, wanted to sell 500 of them. 
and they were rented. We had renovated them. They were rented. And there, I, I started calling brokers and I, the first woman I, I talked to, she said that she didn't have 500 signs. And I started, I just got to start laughing. So your biggest issue is you don't have 500 signs. You know, I've got $50 million worth of real estate I want to sell. Um, so I, I called the next broker and the next broker asked me when I was going to move the people out so they could put a sign in the front yard and sell it to, you know, a homeowner down the street. And that's kind of the genesis of where Roofstock uh, was born. We knew that we had done the hard work on these houses. We had renovated them. We'd put good tenants in there. They were producing real cash flow. And the best buyer for those homes weren't it wasn't necessarily in that neighborhood in Dallas. It could be in Hong Kong or San Francisco or New York. So wanted to create a marketplace. And so started, you know, thinking through that idea, met Gary. Gary was, you know, running a big public company at the time in, in this space. And we started talking about, uh, about, uh, about the idea of, of exposing this asset class to the world and then taking it a step further and really creating a transaction platform that eliminates the cost and friction associated with buying and selling homes. So our goal, you know, we have a couple, you know, key things that we look at at Roostock, but one of them is how do we make this a more efficient, transparent market, make it better for the seller, better for the buyer. And then the other one is for the buyer, how do we separate investing from operations? So that that's, that's where we started. And it's, uh, you know, we're two years into it now. So I thought for today's chat, one of the ways we could structure it, and, and you're, you're talking to someone who's never owned a house. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about on the podcast is four real big ways to to make big money in investing. One being owning a business. Second being, you know, being the bank. Third is, is kind of following the trends and that's more of a, a trading system side. And the fourth is really holding the keys. So having uh, income generating real estate property and we don't talk that much about it. So for the listeners who probably aren't as familiar, although ironically, most people listening probably are more familiar with owning a home than a lot of the other esoteric topics we talk about. Maybe we'll talk about how in general, how to evaluate properties and moving on to, you know, tenants and leasing and, and, and kind of the pain points and the hassles, which have always made me kind of want to shy away and then kind of how y'all saw those opportunities. So first, um, with that framework in mind, uh, and I'm blabbing on, but where, where should our listeners start? When you started to think about people um, looking to add rental real estate to their portfolios, you know, kind of before you guys, what, what are the options? You know, how, how do people go about it? If I wanted to buy a property, what, what, how did, how do people do this for the past 50 years? Yeah. So this is, this is Gary. So, um, the old way was really to identify a market you might want to be interested in. Let's say you live in Seattle and you want to own property in Florida. You would fly to Florida, look at a bunch of homes, make a bunch of offers hopefully get one or two of them accepted, and then you would do diligence and probably end up retrading the price based on what you find. Maybe you end up with one, then you have to find a property management company to manage it for you. And it's, it's quite expensive and inefficient to do that. And, and as a consequence, about 70% of all rental homes today are owned within an hour's drive of where the owner lives which is not a great diversification strategy uh, from an investment standpoint because you tend to be totally tied to where you live from an economic cycle standpoint. So if you look at the way it's done on roof stock and you'd like to invest in a, a market that might be counter-cyclical to where you live, we do all that in a, in a very transparent way. So you could, you could look at properties in markets all over the country. You can evaluate 
their diligence materials, they're already leased, so you don't have to worry about what they would rent for. So you, the, the, the home itself has been vetted, the, the tenant's been vetted, and local property managers have been vetted. So at the end of the day, what you end up with is a, a much easier process. We charge sellers a lot less than conventional uh, channels, so it can pass some of that savings along to the investor. And it's uh, you can monitor your performance on those investments through the app that we've developed, and we monitor that as well and provide some ongoing support if you, you know, buy through our site. So our, our goal is to make it incredibly easy to get exposure to the asset class. We've got people you can talk to uh, about you know, specific homes or markets or just investing in the asset class in general, or you could be a very much a self-serve person if you know what you want and know where you want to do it. And you could do it yourself just through our website and kind of every in between. So maybe we'll walk through an example. You know, I spent some time on the site. It seems like, uh, and, and feel free to correct me because I have a thousand questions. Um, you know, it seems like there's over like 400 properties on there and, you know, they seem to range from maybe a hundred grand up to, uh, 1.2 million. Um, or maybe, sorry, excuse me, 40 grand up to 1.2 million. And so a lot of kind of what you guys built is the technology to make this whole process simpler. So now that you've removed sort of the neighborhood kind of hassle of someone trying to go and, and, and buy rental properties, because that's how most people do it. You know, they're, they're in their town and they have a little value add. So now, okay, so now you've removed that. You say you can invest anywhere. You know, what, what's like, how do people start? So like, if I'm looking for a house to buy, where do I go? Well, like, what, what's, the, what's the criteria? What should I be thinking about? Yeah, so I, th- I think you look at the goals of owning a you know, rental property is, you know, you're looking for cash flow, you're looking for long-term value appreciation in a very tax-efficient way. So that's why people like, and you can lever your position. So that's why people like owning, you know, rental properties. What, and everyone's got their own, you know, way of viewing the world. The way I typically like to look at it is I start a very macro view. Okay, where, where, where do I want to invest globally? What do jobs look like? What, do, what does the population growth look like? And, you know, some of the, you know, the, what are some of the hotter markets where I, you know, I, I've read about, I'm interested in, um, whether it's Florida, Atlanta, Dallas, and then, then start looking at, and what, what we've done at Roofstock is you can now compare homes in Atlanta in a three-star, four-star neighborhood against homes in Dallas that are a three-star and four-star neighborhood and look at yield. And yield is really just, a way to define cash flow. So if I am I making five, six, seven percent on my invested dollars, and so what kind of cash flow is that going to give me, you know, on a monthly basis? And then outside of that, I mean, we provide all the all the inspections are done, so you can look at the home. You say, okay, I like this house. I like the return it's providing. I like the macro story of Atlanta, for example. Now you you can look at the the photos, the 3D tour, and and pick it and put it in your basket. So I think it's, it's just like buying anything else. You want to start at a very high level. We put a lot of research on the site and then you drill down and you start looking and comparing, you know, home in Dallas against a home in Atlanta and figuring out which one you like more. And, and so you guys currently are domestic only, right? Just in the U S yeah, we, we've got a lot of interest from foreign um, investors and people that want us to build out this market in you know the UK, for example, but you know, we're currently in, 14 markets in the U.S. and growing into into a few others of the the, the back half of this year. I, I assume that's part of the uh, recently raised 20 million dollar round. By the way, congrats, guys! Thank um, you for for that expansion. 
one of the things I noticed on your site, so you go on there, maybe you identify the markets you're interested in. By the way, we have Jeff's high school town on there, Winston-Salem, Jeff and I both, as well as recently moved into LA. So let's say I, I, I narrow it down to a couple of places. It, it looks to me like you guys have valuations set. How do you how do you come? Is that sort of like a CarMax model? How do you come to the valuations um, for the properties on the site? Yeah, so we use a, a number of different third-party tools to evaluate um, value, and we put those on our website So in the diligence vault there. So People we know will look at Zillow. We use a group called House Canary. We've used a few others. Um, the goal is to be transparent. And remember, an appraiser's value or an estimate of value, is, it's just an estimate. It ultimately comes down to what it's worth to uh, between a, a willing buyer and seller. But we do provide that sort of transparency because it is important for a lot of buyers who do want to use financing for the, for the property to appraise. And so our goal is, is to put as much of that information out there as we can. We've developed some technology internally, which we haven't made live yet on the site, which estimates the probability of sale at different prices, for example, and we're perfecting that algorithm and that's going to continue to get better. But we think we're probably as good as anybody in the country at valuing rental properties because we can look at for sale and and existing comps that have sold and, and we know where things are trading also on an income basis. We know what investors are looking for on our site and how how much homes should be worth um, on the marketplace today. So we should be getting better and better at predicting value and allowing sellers to choose a price that meets their liquidity preference. So some people may say, I want to choose a price that will allow me to sell the home in a day and, and, and get liquidity faster. And others may say, I'm fine waiting 30 or 60 days and ask a little bit more and try to get it and sort of everything in between. The point of what we're trying to do here is in creating a marketplace is provide the data and the transparency. So these, we don't own these houses. We just provide all of that context for a buyer and seller to make a, a good decision. We want to make sure that the seller you know, gets a price that makes sense for them and that the buyer gets the value that they they think makes sense for, for, for their side of the equation. What we've done in creating Roofstock is we've created a very efficient way for that transaction to happen and reduce the cost. So what that means is that the buyers can actually sell for a little bit less, but net more proceeds. And therefore the, the, or sorry, the seller can, can sell for a little bit less and net more proceeds and the buyer gets a better value uh, going in. You don't have the 6% brokerage commission. You don't have that um, downtime of moving the renter out and putting it on the market, you know, which you are losing cash flow. Yeah. So I mean, we've, we've done the math, the total uh, cost to a seller vacating a home to sell it on the MLS, spiffing it up a little bit to sell it and uh, paying a brokerage fee is about 10 to 12 percent of the value of the home. So even if they sell it for full fair market value, they're netting about 88 cents on the dollar. Through Roofstock, um, the, the tenant stays in the home. There's no need for any of that capex or downtime, and we charge a fraction of that fee. So it's a couple of points, uh, two to two and a half percent is typically our fees. And I and I assume that comes out of kind of is it on both sides, the well, seller and the seller? Yeah, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's paid by the seller, and we do charge a half a point of marketplace fee on the buy side to use our platform and get all the diligence materials. Which which ends up being about five to six hundred dollars to the buyer. But what's included in that is pretty pretty interesting. You know, our background, Gary and I bought about four billion dollars worth of houses over the last few years across the country. And so we we 
are bringing to the platform a lot of that institutional knowledge, but also that institutional pricing. So if you're a retail investor and you go out and you try and get a home inspection, you're going to pay anywhere from you know $700 to $1,500 just for the home inspection. Title work is going to be much more. Insurance is going to be much more. What we include on the buy side is only once you decided to buy the home, you get the valuations that are done. You get the inspection that's done, the pre, pre-work on the title, uh, 3D imaging, uh, and underwriting of the tenant. So all of that's included once you've elected to buy. I have so many questions. All right. So, so one, okay. So the cool thing about this in general, if you're an investor, is that the properties already have tenants. And so there's already kind of a defined income range you're going to get. So if you go to the site and you're searching properties, it says, here's a house in Winston-Salem. It's a million bucks. And, you know, you have a gross yield of 10% because this person's in there. How do you guys kind of, is, is there any way to, to screen the, you know, the, the tenants and, and, and do most of the buyers then, uh, and I don't know if you have analytics on this, then just run it themselves or they use a property management, uh, management company? What, what's the process? Like, okay, they decide to buy it. How do most people, um, then, then manage the, the property? Yeah, mo- mo- most people do. First of all, the front end of your question, uh, we look at the tenant ledgers and, and, and validate payment history. We make sure there's a proper security deposit. It's all part of our tenant certification. Look at the screening that was in place when that tenant was put in place, make sure they're current on their rent, et cetera. So we put them through that screen. So the, the homes that are fully certified on our site have the tenant certification box checked, right? So that's first and foremost. Then when most people buy the homes, they tend to pick one of our recommended property managers in that market. So we typically have two or three property managers that we have vetted in those markets. And as you're during your checkout process, you could elect which one you want to take over the management of the home if it's not going to be the incumbent property manager. Sometimes it is, but the majority of time, the seller is not going to retain management. That all gets transferred over during the closing process. And by the time you close and take title to it, uh, you are the owner, the property manager is in place, and they handle all the leasing, repair and maintenance, any collection issues, things like that. It's all handled by that local property manager. Some people do choose to self-manage. It's a small percentage of the people buying through the site today, but some people do choose to do that. You pretty much have to live in the market to be able to do that. Uh, efficiently. And right now, over 93% of our retail buyers are buying in markets where they don't live. So in those cases, they're pretty much all using third-party managers. I think the, the big the big thing that you get that we, that we find is when we go into these markets, so you go into Houston or Dallas, we have a team that goes and interviews all of the, the bigger property managers in that space. We find the very best, two or three. We negotiate on the behalf of our clients a discounted rate. Uh, we work through the contracts, make sure there's no issues there, and we certify that property manager. So it's a full diligence dive on those property managers, kind of good housekeeping seal of approval on those guys. They now become part of our platform. We don't get paid from them. Um, we just want to make sure there's a good experience. And then on a go-forward basis, what Roofstock does is we provide a digital layer of asset management that is between you as the investor and the property manager. So if you don't want to get the phone calls, you don't want to deal with uh, the day-to-day, we can handle all of that through our app. We also provide reporting, accounting, all of the 
things that you would need in running a, 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 um, a property or portfolio properties through the through the the roof savvy app that we've uh, we've just launched. So if if you're deciding to go the property management route, that's that's interesting that it's ninety percent plus, but it makes sense given that most people are coming to you for the convenience of kind of collateralizing this this asset class. What, what, what's the cost or what's the take for a property management company? I mean, I have I have no idea. Is it do they do it as a percentage of the total rent budget? Is it a per month yeah. fee? What's typical? It's, it, it's usually about seven to eight percent of collected rents. And then there, there t- oftentimes tends to be a leasing fee that's charged in connection with a lease, um, and uh, but it's all it's all transparent on our site. You can see what all the property managers charge, and all those expenses are built into the pro forma on the site. So when you look at these net yields on our site, if it's five and a half, six, six and a half percent, that's after the estimated. Uh, property management costs as well as an estimate on vacancy and turn costs and all that. That's all already built into the Yeah, it's credit. net, net, net. All, all. It's basically your, your cash flow after all expenses. And, and why don't you guys explain that real quick just for newbie investors? Because there's a couple different sort of yields and numbers on there for people that don't understand. So you have gross yield, you have net yield, you have levered IRR. Maybe just a quick tutorial on, on what you mean by all those numbers. Sure. Sure. The, 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 um, the gross yield very simply is your annualized rent over your purchase price. So if it's $10,000 a year in, in rent collection and it's $100,000 you buy it for, that's a 10% gross yield. That's yeah. the very simplest metric. And I think it's, it, there, it, this is very basic, but you really need to separate that gross from that net. So we'll see a lot of brokers out there that will advertise the gross yield. And the gross yield really, it's interesting, but it doesn't, it's not what, you know, uh, puts money in in uh, in your pocket. Exactly. So the, what, what? And that's a great great point. The net yield is on our site. If you look at net yield, it's after all of your expenses, which includes uh, you can see repair and maintenance, property taxes, insurance, uh, really any any cost that you have, and property management after operating that. This is before debt. This is assuming it was just a cash purchase. And let's say for this, in this example, it was a 10% gross yield. And let's say it's $5,000 of, of cash flow after all those expenses. That would be a 5% net yield on that same $100,000 home. And then the third metric that we have on there is called internal rate of return or IRR. And that's your annualized return on your equity investment, assuming Debt financing is put in place, and that's so. That's after debt service. It, it is. It assumes a five-year hold period, and an appreciation assumption, which is highlighted in the upper right-hand corner there of our of our listing sheet. You could adjust that to be a, a one-year projection, a five-year historical, twenty-year historical average, or you could play with it and plug in your own number. So that IRR is a measure of what your annualized total return would be on that investment if you bought it today and generated the cash flows that are projected in the model and you sell it at the end of five years, assuming the appreciation that's, that's outlined there. Nerd out a little bit on, you know, some of the different terms, but, and how to, how we get there. But I think the big, the most important piece of this thing is that it is twofold. One is the net unlevered cash flow. So really what you're looking for is what kind of free cash flow am I getting at the end of each month? from owning this house. And the other thing is that 
you can lever the if you you can lever fifty percent up to eighty percent. Um, so what I, I look at my own portfolio, I look at okay, can we? I can buy using a Fannie Mae loan. I can buy up to ten houses and lever it at you know up to eighty percent, thirty year fixed financing at four percent, and I'm buying something that's got a five and a half or six percent unlevered yield. I've got a very good spread between what I'm paying my debt and what my net cash flow is. So I'm positive there and I'm using that leverage to get a nice portfolio. So your current levered cash flow is, you know, kind of eight, nine percent. The thing that's really interesting about owning real estate as opposed to owning debt is it's very tax efficient. So that you can shield a lot of that current cash flow by the depreciation of the asset. Any and so a lot of people will compare their pre-tax earnings. So they'll say, okay, I'm getting you know, 9% buying these loans, I'm getting 9% buying these homes. But really what you need to look at as an individual investor is what is your after-tax return? So it, when you can depreciate that asset and shield, you know, 30, 40% of that income, it looks, you know, much more attractive than what you see um, in some of the other asset classes that are out there. Two quick questions. Do most most people you find that are um, investors, are they financing the homes? Yeah, the majority of our retail investors are financing the home. Um, it really just depends on risk appetite, kind of where you are. Some people will finance at 60%. They just never really want to you know, worry about coverage. And then other people that are you know, a little bit more aggressive are taking full financing from Fannie Mae up to 80%. Yeah, what we're finding is a, a number of people are coming to our site not really knowing that there's investor financing available that's attractive. And let's say they have $100,000 that they're looking to invest, and they're thinking they're going to buy a single property. They'll get on our site, and they'll start engaging with our advisors and learn that they can actually borrow 80%. So for that 100000 they could buy you know, potentially four or five homes, maybe in some different markets, and, and build a diversified portfolio that cash flows really efficiently with, with that financing. And so some people just want to own a, a, a single asset or two without debt, and others want to maximize the number of assets that they could own and take advantage of that financing. And it's really, they're both good options. I, I think here's a question a lot of listeners would, would probably have is you, you are looking at all these 400 plus options in the marketplace. Same as an investor maybe would be looking at MLS or all these other stats and statistics. And, and you have kind of projected yields ranging again from low single digits all the way up to almost 30%. Are the yields seen as in kind of the traditional risk return spectrum where, you know, in many asset classes, a lower yield in most of the cases tends to be a safer investment when the 30% yielder is a Greek bond. Is that the case here? Or are there some other dynamics at play? Like, why wouldn't I just go buy a bunch of 25% yielding houses and, and go from there? It, it, you're exactly right. I would think about it very much in, in bond parlance, a lower yielding kind of 45 to 5% you know, yield uh, on our site would be more like a AAA bond. The, the lower yielding assets are more like a AAA uh, investment grade bond, much lower risk, lower volatility, perhaps lower total return, but it's a more safety and security. And, that, and we have a neighborhood score, which we just rolled out last week on our site, which I would encourage people to go look at. We've rated all 72,000 census tracts in the United States. And you can see the, the five-star neighborhoods and four-star are less risky than the, the say, one- and two-star. When you go into the one- and two-star neighborhoods, you're, you're thinking more junk bond type returns in that 
you, you can get higher coupon, higher yield, but you're going to have probably more variability and, and some risk of loss when you're seeking the, the higher return. And, and, so, and what are the main inputs there for that, that score? It's a, we've got a number of different inputs. It's things like um, median home price, percentage owned, uh, percentage owner occupied versus rental, quality of school districts, employment growth, number of factors like that that all kind of go into a, an overall score that, that measures um, kind of the, the overall quality or risk of that neighborhood. And that, so you should, when you talk about risk and return, that's the exact reason that we introduced this neighborhood score. So what a lot of people end up doing is figuring out what's their risk appetite and then start looking at properties that are similar across the country. We have some people who just want to look at four-star neighborhoods and above and just want safety and security, they're willing to accept a lower return. Other people say, you know what, I'm, I'm young, I want to seek uh, a little bit higher return, I don't mind variability, I'm going to finance maybe a little bit more conservatively, and I'm going to try to get higher returns on my equity, and I'm going to go into you know more some two-star neighborhoods, for example, and kind of everything in between. Maybe thinking about not just individuals diversifying, but you know institutions as well. Is is this something where um, have you guys ever thought about any sort of advisor facing options or funds? Like, if there's no way for someone to come in and be like, you know what, I just want to buy ten a, p- a part of ten or a hundred houses. I don't necessarily want to do all the due diligence. Do you guys have any sort of? I'm, I'm sure you have five different things in the works, but anything in that sort of vein? Yeah, so it's funny that you say that because we're working on that strategy right now. We've had a lot of people contacting us and saying, hey, I'd really love to just put money into a fund. You guys have sort of a real estate ETF or something like that we could invest in by market. And so we're talking to a couple of different fund sponsors who would be looking at aggregating homes in different markets with different strategies so people could come in and get exposure to a, think about it, a fractional interest in a pool of homes. So very much as, as you're talking about, very efficient. You still get the direct exposure, very low fees, um, but you could develop your own kind of strategy. Of maybe I want to put some money in a Midwestern high-yield strategy and some in a California uh, or coastal strategy. All, all these things could be, could be um, set up as, as these sort of focused ETFs, and um, I think there'll be a lot of interest. One of, the, one of the big things we're trying to do is we're trying to really change the way people invest in, in real estate from a load perspective or a fee perspective, a lot of the, the private funds have very high cost. And a lot of the public companies have very high cost. There's some good things about public companies. They're very liquid, but they're also correlated to the stock market and the dividends are very low. So we think we can create a better mousetrap for people, private investors that want to invest in real estate and provide a lower cost way to get exposure to an asset class by using technology to do a lot of the oversight, accounting, reporting and then let people, you know, experts pick pick the homes. You you may have just touched on my next question, which was devil's advocate. Why wouldn't someone just go buy a, a REIT like Silver Bay? Is that what you meant when you said public company? Yeah, public company. It's exactly right. I mean, Gary's probably a better person to talk to it since he ran one. But um, and I've heard the spiel of when he was a public company CEO, why why it's so great to invest in a REIT, and then now I hear the other side. But you know, I think well. The, the thing that I, I think about when investing in, in real estate is across the board, asset levels are at all time high, right? So equities are really elevated. A lot of commercial real estate is really elevated. And so if you're going to try and do something that's uncorrelated to that stock market, 
buying a REIT is not the way to do it. So, you know, we, you've got things that are at an elevated level. You want to get something that's uncorrelated. And so you want direct exposure. So you don't want to be tied. So when, when the stock market moves, the REIT, REIT stocks move with it. The second piece of this is running a public company is very expensive. So there's huge overhead, really expensive people, you know, that you're hiring to, 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 to manage it. That eats into your dividend. There are reasons to own REITs, but I think if you're looking for direct exposure and higher yield, you want to figure out the most efficient way to own real estate directly. I think Gregor summed it up quite quite eloquently. Um, you know, having run a REIT, I'm pretty familiar with the pros and the cons, and, and the pros really are: it's very easy. You've got perfect liquidity and really broad diversification. The, but it does tend to act more like a stock, and so if you feel like stocks are, if I, I view my REIT holdings as a, as a as one of my equity holdings, it happens to be a real estate company. These are very much uh, stocks. I view my, the homes that I own more as my my real estate holdings, and so the only other thing I would point out is that Gregor didn't mention. You can pick your markets more. So if you wanted exposure, if you say I'm a real believer in Texas or I'm a real believer in in um, North Carolina, you, you could buy homes in those markets. Or if you're buying a REIT, you're buying something that's pretty broadly diversified. You can also use leverage more efficiently at an asset level. If you're doing it for yourself, you could borrow 80%. The REITs tend to be kind of 40% leverage or less generally because that's the way REIT institutional investors like them to be capitalized. That's just another advantage, which means your your distributable cash, your return on your equity that you can get with a properly constructed and properly managed individual portfolio could be higher because of that, those factors. So if someone's thinking about this, I, I, there's there's two obvious questions in my head. One is, um, how do you start to think about building a portfolio? Because, you know, just the same as buying one stock or buying an investment, you know, one tends to be pretty risky. So is, is there a minimum amount of homes that you would consider to be kind of a diversified portfolio? And, and if so, I assume they would need to be in different geographies or different star ratings. How do, how do you think about kind of putting it all together? So, look, I think part part of what we've set up here is your portfolios are always good. Kind of more the better, the more diversification, the less, you know, variability you have on cash flow. You know, but I wouldn't shy away from buying just one house. Um, buying one home, if you've got the transparency that we provide, you're looking at it, and then you have some reserves that you've set aside. So, you know, that if the tenant moves out and you have two months of downtime, you can cover you know, the couple hundred dollars you might have in debt service. It really, you never want to stretch to where your last dollar is into anything, right? So as long as you've got, you know, uh, uh, the right risk tolerance and that you've, um, you've got some cash reserves, one home is, is a great way to start. A lot of people that we work with have a goal of kind of buying one home every year and building up a portfolio for, for their retirement where the renter is paying down their debt. They're going to have equity at the end of the day. They're also going to have cash flow. You know, and that's a very uh, great way to build a, a pretty nice piggy bank of cash flowing assets. It doesn't need to be all at, all at once to build a portfolio. It needs to be kind of over time. You know, if you can get the three to five to 20 houses, you know, that just depends on kind of your, your personal situation. Yeah, I think a lot of people are looking at diversification in a couple of layers. The first level of diversification might be just getting some money out of the equity market into something like housing. So you're diversifying just by getting out of the stock market, which oftentimes moves kind of in unison. I think the more, and then, and then being able to buy in a market that is not where you live 
gives you that much more diversification, even if you're buying a single house. Um, and then over time, I think people are looking to add properties, as, as Greger says, over time, which, which gives you uh, an ability to have uh, even properties themselves that are moving it, it, it into different cycles. I, I think that's actually really good advice because I, I, almost applying almost like a private equity sort of lens to investing in, in these homes because I talk to so many friends that are you know getting into new things like angel investing. And I say, look, you need to commit to maybe, I don't know, five, seven year time frame where you're going to commit X amount each year because you don't know where you are in the cycle. And in that sort of equity world, it feels pretty late. But you know, to be able to commit in good times is bad to be able to balance it out. And I think that that's some thoughtful advice for this too. I meant to ask this earlier. What? It, let's say you have a portfolio of, I don't know, less than five homes, one to five homes. What would you estimate if you're using the property management services how much time are you really spending on that per year if you own a couple homes across country? Is it a consistent effort or is it kind of just like I, I deal with it at year end and that's it? What's what, what's the kind of time requirement? And then also, what's the time requirement if you're doing it on your own? I'll, I'll address the doing it on your own later. But I think one of the, the things that you know is game changer with what we built here is the ability to own multiple homes in different markets and not have to... Um, interact with each property manager. You know, what we've created with our, with our app is we actually pull in all the data from, let's say you have three homes in three different markets with three different property managers. The old way would have been, you would have gotten three separate statements, three different people you'd have to talk to and, and manage and give feedback on, on certain pieces of the, you know, of the, you know repair and maintenance or, a, you know, a new lease. What we've done is we, we actually pull in all the data so we consolidate all the information from each of those property managers. We provide you in our app one consolidated financial statement. We tell you exactly what happened last month, how much cash came in, were there any expenses? And then we also, we do a lot of the math for you. Here's your yield, here's your you know total return for the last quarter, for the last year. And then if there's issues, we actually will look at the data. And if your water heater goes out in Tampa and they charge you $1,000, our data says, no, it should be $600 in Tampa based on all the information we see, we'll flag that for you. So we really try and separate investing from operations. If you're using our certified property managers, you can kind of be as in as active as you want to be. But most of the people that we do it, the whole reason they want to invest in Roostock is they don't want to deal with this stuff. They want they want an allocation to you know private real estate, but they don't want to you know be the manager. So maybe like 10 hours a year or something, 20, 10 to 20 or something like that. Is that reasonable? Yeah. It, it, like, yeah. I mean, I, I own quite a few homes and I don't, I just choose not to deal with it. Um, the property managers deal with it. Roofstock deals with it. You know, there are other people that are really interested in wanting to know, you know, every $50 expense um, item and, and want to talk about it. So, and that's yeah, fine and too. On so a typical monthly basis, there's really nothing to talk about. Right. right? There's the, the month. The rent comes in most of the time, uh, on time, on schedule, and there may be some repair and maintenance items you get notified about. But it's 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 really unless you're self managing and people are calling you um, because their you know their toilets clogged or things like that. That that's why people choose to use third party managers. So I think when you self manage, it could be tens of hours. When you use third party managers through Roofstock, it's a very light. So like touch. Your time. I mean, you, you know, if you want to get involved and, in, you know, if there's a, a water heater that goes out, you want to understand, okay, that's maybe once every couple of years, 
you're going to spend an hour on it. If the tenant moves and you've got to release the home, you may want to understand what's going on in the market. Can you push your rents? Spend a little time on it. Outside of that, you're not really dealing with it. Now, if you self-manage and you're trying to save that 8% of collected rent, which really just isn't, in my mind, isn't that much, you, you're going to be dealing, uh, you're very heavy on when you're trying to find a new tenant. It's very hard to do when you're out of market. So, you know, that's why people tend to do it in their backyard. It, it's really interesting because we just published an article talking about investors that are spend amount of time amount of time they spend trying to beat the market and the analysis was look if you're spending two four six eight hours a week you know trying to beat the market and you know you value your time at anywhere twenty dollars to five hundred dollars you know an hour it goes to show that like all this time spent I mean that's fine if it's a hobby and you're learning and you're considering it that growth that's fine but actually like the effort to think you're adding value add it, it doesn't even make sense until like the value of the portfolio gets above something like 20 or 50 million um and this is interesting kind of exercise in this thought where it's like why would you do the hassle just use a property management company uh it seems um pretty obvious yeah i think well i think i mean look the, the whole thing here is you're just like betting you know in a stocks or whatever you're you're putting an allocation into real estate you made your your assumptions on the market you wanted to invest in and then you really your whole thing here is you just want to get picked off, right? And that's where Roofstock provides that kind of that oversight where the property manager or the tenant or someone's not going to do something that's out of market. And we provide benchmarking. How are you doing compared to the market? Should you make a change with a property manager or is your insurance higher than it should be? That knowledge that we're able to provide the retail investor is huge value add and it doesn't require any time for you. So I got about three more questions and we only have about 10 minutes. So these are going to be kind of rapid fire. But all of a sudden, another 2008, 2009 comes along. 2007, 2009, real estate topped a little earlier. What, what do you kind of recommend to investors when they're thinking about this? You know, I, I think it'd be tempting for a lot of people to, to start levering up pretty large would be, you know, what kind of cushion and buffer? You mentioned REITs earlier, which declined, public REITs declined 70% in the financial crisis, like how, how should people think about kind of, you know, worst case scenarios and, and what, what sort of reasonable rules of thumb think about, you know, properties and, and the in, income as well? Well, I, you know, I think that people, I think have learned a bit of a lesson through the, through the last cycle. Um, also, I think what's different now is you have institutional investors who will step in to buy these rental properties when the prices drop because the yields get attractive. So when you when you think back when Gregor and I first started buying homes at our last platforms during the downturn in 2009, 2010, there was really no institutional bid on those homes, and there was really very little owner-occupied bid. So we were able to buy those homes uh, at a very low price. They dropped, in many cases, 50% from the peaks. Today, those same homes that have been purchased, renovated, and appreciated meaningfully again, there is, in my view, some downside protection for these homes that could be rented at a decent yield by institutional investors who would view this as a buying opportunity. So I don't see the, the prices popping as precipitously as they did in the first downturn when there was no institutional ownership for rental property. So that, that's one thing to think about. But I also think about you know when you own a rental property, the maximum leverage you could put on it is 80%. A lot of our people are doing 70. That's probably the average level that people are levering. When you buy a home to live in, oftentimes people borrow 
95, 97%. So there's very little equity cushion. You could be underwater in your primary residence pretty easily. So you've got a, a 20 or 30% equity cushion when you buy these investment properties. And most of our people are getting fixed rate financing as well, as opposed to floating rate that could have a balloon. That's what got a lot of people in trouble, obviously. Yeah, I, think, I think, you know, when I look at this, there's, okay, think about what, what did people do in the past? They were focused on appreciation. That, so they, were, they, weren't, they were willing to actually go negative cash flow on a monthly basis because home prices never went down. Well, guess what? They can go down. But what was interesting is when we went back, we looked over multiple decades of uh, data and we looked at what happened, especially in 2008, to rent. What happened was when the, when the financial crisis happened and home prices went down dramatically, home building stopped, right? So there's no new supply coming on the market. Those people continued to you know, create families, we had population growth. So we actually had demand for rental property. So what, what you saw in the downturn was you actually saw, as long as you weren't on a you know, balloon loan or that you weren't negative from a cash flow situation, you saw your rents or your yields increase over your cost basis. So when I look at this from a downside perspective, I, I always like to limit the amount of leverage. But more importantly, I look at what is my monthly cost for that debt and what is my rent and how much how much cushion do I have till I get to where it's break even. If I have a couple hundred dollars in there and in a downturn, rents actually increase, you know, I feel pretty, pretty comfortable that I'm going to be able to ride out the storm. You know, there's not many asset classes where you can look at your downside being just holding it a little bit longer, but still actually getting as good or, or increased cash flow. I have like three more pages of questions, but we're bumping into the final couple minutes. What, what's the kind of biggest challenge? Like I imagine when we talk to the Pier Street guys, which I know y'all are friendly with, one, you know, I assume they're kind of a complimentary offering rather than necessarily a direct competitor, but, but they mentioned the biggest challenge was kind of the supply versus the demand. You know, how do you balance the amount of properties on your website for, you know, people looking to sell versus people looking to buy. Is that, is that a big challenge? How, how do you kind of work, work with that? Yeah, yeah, really with any marketplace, balancing supply and demand is, is typically the biggest challenge. And depending on what week it is, Gregor and I will be more concerned about one side or the other, which is, the, I think, the sign of a healthy marketplace. Um, but right now we probably have over 10,000 homes at the top of our funnel that we're evaluating to put through. Uh, we don't want to certify and put those homes on the site tomorrow because that would be too much inventory. So we're constantly trying to filter that through and match that with the demand that we're getting as, as we continue to build our brand and, and get more and more consumer traffic. But the good news is there's 16 million rental homes in America that is our target. It's about $3 trillion of assets. And we've got, as you mentioned, about 400 homes perhaps on our site today out of that 16 million, but we're, there's, I hesitate to say a limitless supply, but effectively there is of product here. Um, we're kind of the, the, the filter through which people hopefully can see and find and shop for homes that have been you know, put through onto our marketplace and to just greatly simplify that shopping process. Let us do some of that heavy lifting for them. And then over time, we'll, we'll spend more and more dollars attracting people to our website and growing our brand and, and growing that demand side as well. 
I, I loved one of y'all's tweets talking about talking to an investor on the airplane who, it, by the time the plane landed, had it invested in one of the properties. So, podcast listener, if you bought a house by the end of the podcast, certainly <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Particularly if it's in Winston-Salem, I'll tell you where it is. Last question, because we don't really have any time. What one piece of advice would you guys give to our listeners regarding making their first rental real estate investment? What would it be? Yeah, I think that uh, most important thing to do is is to um, is to get in early. I mean, I wish I would have started buying you know houses um, as soon as I could, you know, afford the down payment to to start building a portfolio. Um, you know, it, sometimes you sacrifice the vacation here or there to to start building that portfolio. So you know that that's that's important. And then the second thing is just make sure that you've got enough cash. There's always things that that come up. It may not be in the first year or the second year, but at some point, you know, the home will need a little TLC. So make sure you've got, you know, a reserve there. Yeah, I, I would say um, in addition to that, um, don't freak out if property prices drop a little bit. That's the whole reason you, you, you invest for the long term in this asset class. So if property prices go down, as long as you're financed, you financed it properly, uh, it doesn't mean it's a bad investment uh, just because it, it may have some variability in what it's worth on paper. It's, it's only a loss if you choose to sell it or have to sell it during that time. So view it as part of a longer term strategy. Uh, and I like Gregor's idea, of, you know, just trying to buy kind of a home a year. So, you know, you can do that and then you're, it's, it's almost dollar cost averaging. You kind of buy through cycles. And at the end of the day, you look back in five or 10 years and you've, you've got a portfolio that you've constructed over time um, and taken advantage of, of wherever you are in the cycle. It reminds me of the old Charlie Munger when he says the two biggest things that muck up investor portfolios is credit and chemicals. And so I think that's great advice. Start early, start slow, and, and don't over-lever yourself. Gary and Gregor, thanks so much for taking the time out today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Really enjoyed it. Where, uh, so where can people follow you? Twitter, website, where if they want to learn more, where do they go? Yeah, uh, at Roofstock is our Twitter handle. And uh, they could go to our website, which is just roofstock.com and get more info. Uh, it's been a blast. Listeners, thanks for taking the time to listen in today. We always welcome more feedback and questions to the mailbag at feedback at the com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at com podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.